Welcome to Adopting Zero Trust, an independent podcast that dives into the world of zero trust and tells the story of people who are adopting it. Throughout our series, we'll investigate why zero trust is becoming a critical concept for cybersecurity. Our hosts, Elliot Volkman and Neil Dennis, will have transparent and open conversations with the people driving modern security approaches forward while leaving vendor hype behind. It's time to remove implicit trust and buzzwords and get to the root of the movement. All right. Hello, everyone, and thank you. And welcome back to Adopting Zero Trust, or AZT, as we have come to call it. We have another wonderful guest for you here today. And today, we're going to branch out side of uh, some of the concepts that we've covered before. Where we go from there, you know how our usual scope goes. It can go anywhere. But that being said, I want to introduce you to Dom. He has a completely varied background. And I'll just kind of go through a little bullet point list, and then I'll let you handle it and make sure I didn't miss anything important. So that being said, Dom has a wonderful security background, currently is the CSO or even CTO for CyberSM, which is sort of a network that connects cybersecurity professionals to organizations. There's probably more to it. In the past, he has been a security consultant, a CISO, and I'd say probably based on some of what I've seen in the past, also a lot of due diligence work and efforts tied to PE firms. So that is a huge undertaking, which could have huge impacts. And obviously, Zero Trust is going to have some implications there. With that being said, now I'm going to hand that off to you and make sure uh, we give yourself a proper introduction. Thanks, Elliot. Thanks. Now, it's great to be here. So it came from the government space, spent 20 some years working in the intelligence agencies, mainly on the defensive and then transitioned to the offensive side. Had some tremendous opportunities as a research fellow, both applied and theoretical in the cyber space um, and stayed in government contracting for 20 years and just the pace of government contracting and the burnout and just all the things that accompany traditional cyber professionals as they progress up the chain just started to take its toll on me and like everyone else I went looking for a position and stumbled onto a company called Cybersecurity Network which is CyberSN and they were helping me find a position in that process. The founder and CEO said, you know, why don't you come with us? We'd like to expand our contracting and consulting. We're you know, in the market for a cyber leader. And it's six years in a blink of an eye. And I assure you, too, that the pace between government contracting and the commercial world is a significant delta, both in pace, application, in facade terminology, everything is completely different and upside down at times and right side up all at the same time. And one of the great things about CyberSN is uh, there's many great things. One, we're on the cusp of what cyber professionals and companies are doing, trending hiring wise, technology tools. So really an insider look at just the industry as a whole. And the consulting and contracting arm, I've really had an, a great opportunity to look at large mergers, acquisitions in the PE space in a cyber tech due diligence. And it's, I said to you earlier in the intro, it's really opened my aperture on just how sometimes for profit and for the pur purpose of moving forward, there's a lot of shortcuts. There's a lot of good things, a lot of bad things and a lot of paper tigers out there. When you asked me to talk about zero trust, it has been something that just appeared out of nowhere in, in diligence exercises and really accelerated through the, you know, the pandemic. And it 
I don't want to open off on one of the, just the typical cyber guy and the marketing. Zero trust really is sometimes a good looking sticker and something products can stick alongside almost akin to when, you know, blockchain started to happen. Every company had blockchain in their name. I'm starting to see more and more cyber products and cyber professionals just throwing ZTA, ZT, or just zero into something. And I think this conversation in this forum is definitely needed just for the betterment of the community. I mean, we're all community people. Give back is a large part of the attack surface. And um, looking forward to rocking out an hour with you guys. Awesome. You hit so many bullet points that I'm about to open the can <laughs> of worms on. And I know Neil's going to have a lot of this near and dear to his heart because employee growth and retention and being able to embrace people on your organization is very important, especially in our space where there's a lot of burnout. The need for bringing people in is just incredibly important. And the comings and goings that you have insight into that probably just not a lot of people have that pulse on obviously gives you a lot of insight that we're hopefully going to be able to tap into a bit. No, just trend. You, you, I, the th first thing that came to mind is, is it, it's interesting being in the staffing and connecting people and having companies ask you for needs right before the pandemic really officially hit. There were larger companies that were positioning themselves. And when you take a look at the data, if even you look at it from a defender standpoint, there's just anomalies across the graph. There's, you know, there's a harmony that we always look for. And we started to see like a harmonic imbalance of companies that don't traditionally hire full-time remote people starting to prepare for remote cyber. And it almost tipped the hand of there's something larger coming. So those are the small insights that you have just in mm -hmm. one tiny aspect of it. So I know, I know that's way off ZT, but no, it is that's, insight into that's the industry. Par it's, for it's the tremendous. Course. Yeah, I think that's yeah, I think exactly on, on course because the elder element is now they have to have security infrastructure that supports remote teams. You can't really focus on VPN solutions because that's not truly zero trust. You need ZTNA or SDP. Yep. You need the people with the professional skills to be able to implement and be able to manage and identity access. That's my tangent. I'm going to throw that over to Neil because I know he's got some opinions on this. <laughs> no, I, it's trends analysis 101. You know, if, if y'all are at the forefront from a hiring perspective, seeing it, like you just mentioned, I think it's, it is very indicative, like Elliot mentions of what you need to do to prep. You're not going to have an entire remote workforce, whether you want it or not, without having some adjustment to security processes as a whole. You've got people who, from the government side, we had some spots in the office spaces where you had some BYOD attempts in certain lesser echelons of the security world. And then we realized that was one of the dumbest things we've ever done, thankfully, but they tried it, right? Corporations do that today, right? And then that's a whole whole new ball of wax that they have to overcome now when it's not just BYOD, it's your office is your office with your own microcosm of issues and it's no longer monitored by the corporation, right? So this trust layer, I think, has to be built some way or another to have that, that zero trust framework or some new security process flow. Yeah, almost methodology, model, principles. You know, you, you, as you were, you, you struck a memory cord. You know, you kind of think about where we started and where Zero Trust kind of is today. And some point, I'd like to just get Neil's opinion. You know, is Zero Trust really Zero Trust? Is it something that 
is achievable. I certainly know, and I hope everyone agrees, it's not something you can buy. You can't Google zero trust and you can't buy it from you know the top three vendors. There's not a Gartner quadrant for zero trust things. Not yet. Uh, not, yeah, not yet. Just the evolution of it. I mean, we started our days in ACLs in layer seven, role-based access, least privilege. And now we're into this mode of trust. And when you talk about zero trust, you're evaluating zero trust. The question that it's an almost an academic is what is trust to you? I think it's a model. I think it's a principle. And it's certainly something that is continuous because I trusted you to join this and you trusted me to join this as this, you know, progresses over time, almost analog, we'll continue to trust each other, but we're constantly evaluating as this conversation goes, which is a key fundamental or key foundational element, I think, of what zero trust is. The zero trust architecture is something that's con that starts with nothing, is evaluated and continues to evaluate or continues to unwind analog like over time. Yeah, I think that's a good point. You know, it to kind of unpack that a little bit at the start, talking about that th this isn't a COTS type thing. You're not going to go buy a zero trust platform. And you're going to buy, like you mentioned earlier, you're going to buy pieces where somebody says there's zero trust or they work with the zero trust mentality. You're going to get whatever that looks like, a firewall or a network device, a laptop that has a certain client running on it, whatever that may be, whatever those toolings end up growing into. But you're not just going to go out of the box like you would buy an actual firewall and be like, that firewall is zero trust. No, it is it is a procedural approach. It is something that, you know, it's part of your implementation that may or may not require you to buy actual new tools. It may be as simple as looking at your ACLs and everything else that's going on, Right and thinking right. about it from that procedural perspective. I think that's the big thing for people to understand. You know, there's money to be made in it. Then that's why we're having this conversation in a sense is to figure out where the money needs to go versus where it already is based off what your current methodologies and security stack allow. And then hopefully not go out and buy $2 million worth of zero trust architecture right. when you're buying the same thing, but it just has a better access control and allow and don't allow blacklist whitelist structure behind it. Oh. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And I really do enjoy the concept of always or trust and verify, but adding the trust starts at zero and is constantly reevaluated. And when I'm doing assessments in companies that have large certifications, there's, you know, SOC 2, Type 2, their ISO. And they've checked every box and have, you know, all the ribbons that you could possibly have. And in their technology stack and their cyber stack and in their strategy, they have great buzzwords. And one of my challenges with zero trust is it really has become buzz and not a principle and not a, a VPN does not therefore mean you have zero trust. So when you're trying to explain this, I think one of the best starting points, aside from thinking about what the outcome is, is what does zero trust replace? Does it replace anything or does it augment things? Um, I think if you had to say, what does it replace? I think it replaces your, your model and your principles. Overall, I don't think it's a, what is it, a forklift upgrade. We're not taking rule-based access and tossing it out the window. We're bringing them all together and utilizing them all in a different model. Um, some of the technologies that you mentioned, that Neil mentioned in the stack are still usable today. Next gen firewalls, even you know the EDR that is in place now for on-prem organizations are a large part of the zero trust architecture. I think that's a wonderful point too, though. It's 
you're not taking something to get rid of something else. You're not buying something to remove something per se. And you're not even necessarily getting away from what you've been doing as a holistic thing. You want to still have this layers, this onion approach to your security stack, I hope. So even if you go through and do everything zero trust, conceptually, that's still just one idea of security model, right? And just even if you do it perfect and you understand what that means to your organization, there's still other security mechanisms you probably want to fall back on and have as additional layers wrapped up in there, you know, at least in my thought flow. So taking zero trust conceptually, looking at your current stack, applying it, but then understanding that the layers that you already built in there from a security perspective, if you're not obliterating them out just to do the zero trust piece, you might still keep them there as an additional buffer for if this falls apart as well, at least in my thoughts. No, I think you're spot on. The defense in depth definitely resonates. It's harder to see in zero trust until you really go through and plan it out. And look, we all start our career hands on keyboard, running as fast as we can and implement. And as we get time behind us, you start to see the value in the preparation stage. I mean, we're all great incident responders and all those other phases don't mean crap unless you have good prep. Um, and one of the challenges I've seen with misaligned zero trust architectures or zero trust models is they said, I want to do zero trust. I have a VPN, I have two FA, I have users. I'm going to say these are my digital assets, which is, you know, a user and a computer or, you know, some device. They're going to connect to the VPN, and but there's no context behind it. It, it. They've essentially digitized the castle moat. Everyone's connecting to a VPN and they're going to the cloud. They've just shifted hardware to a cloud-based platform and called it zero trust because there was no planning. There was no just no prep and identifying identity, network, data, applications. What am I missing? What was the fifth in applications? No, the network layer. Yeah. Well, if you don't start with those five pillars and really inventory, understand your flows, and just think about uh, for a second, a normal, just pick one person in your enterprise or in your company and say, what is their workflow of the day? And start with something simple like email. They need to get access from email. Are they accessing it from their phone? Are they accessing it from the company asset? Are they accessing it from home, from the office, in the car? What data do they have access to once they get to the server? Where is it stored? Who else can see it? There's this lineage of workflow decisions that you really need to consider as you're building zero trust. And the other downside I've seen to zero trusted architectures is our arch nemesis, which is complexity. We can overcomplicate things, not by design, but because of interest. And you know, you know, just think about the amount of protection, monitoring, auditing, and automation and threat detection that goes into someone logging into email. And overcomplicating that in a zero trust is easy to do because you can make that continual cycle of am I who, is it Dom that is logging in? Is it the right device? Is that the right mail server? Is that the right time? Is he in the right country? How many times did he do it? You can really make that evaluation, that continuous trust evaluation, extremely painful and complex, which is our nemesis. Complexity is hard to do. It's hard to sustain and it's certainly hard to maintain. That's a good point. I think a traditional security stack is more hierarchical approach, right? So we've got mm -hmm. 
end user all the way up through gateway and everything outside. But there's some layers behind it, default layer. And in a zero trust implementation, you start to break down some of those walls a little bit. Not all of them. There's still going to be DMZs, firewalls, things like that in a sense. But when you start to put in those layers, you go from more of a hierarchical stair-step approach to more of a mesh topology mentality around how you're doing things. And then, like you mentioned, that is a layer of complexity that most people are not ready to deal with where, you know, there's that 5,000 laptops now, instead of going up, down, they're just going straight across to do something depending on, you know, from the authentication and access controls and all that stuff. I think for me that that does appear very daunting in my perspective. Yeah, I love your perspective because when you were saying that there is an aspect of is zero trust really right? for this particular workflow. Does zero trust work with IoT devices? I mean, yeah, they are devices and they do authenticate, they access data. They should have a strong surface they need maintained. Are they in an environment that zero trust will be more comp more complex, more costly than traditional, just micro-segmenting and layer three NAT? Um, so th there, there is a, you know, a cost trade-off, and I think zero trust is a model and principle. And tossing the perimeter away and stop focusing on the perimeter is where the industry is heading. We are, we're not going back to an office. I mean, there's, there's certainly there's government and industries that warrant being in the office, um, but the assets around them, there's not data centers. There's not large data centers. People are migrating away from or have with either COVID yeah. or just the cost. It, it will still remain for the near term three to, you know, three to five. It's that, that's such a hard crystal ball. Zero trust is a journey. It's not a, it's not microwavable popcorn. You, you, there, there's not instructions that you can put in and set time and eat it when you're done. It's continuous. It's a website quote right there, I think. Waiting. <laughs> and we're going to get a t-shirt. Zero trust isn't microwave popcorn. I think that if we do any public presentations, panels at conferences and stuff, that's the shirt, Elliot, I want. Zero <laughs> trust is not microwave popcorn. That's what done. I want on a shirt. I'll yeah. get us bumper stickers yeah. to go with it. Yeah. and then, Or we could just have you know the sticker like this and then it does not equal popcorn. Fuck it. <laughs> there you yeah. go. I like that. Who and needs I, the marketing yeah. guy? We got it right here. <laughs> well, that, that being said, though, I mean, that, that is obviously a very fair statement. You know, everybody always is looking for an easy button. Everybody's looking for a single pane of glass. They're looking for EDR that does everything. They're looking for next generation SOAR, next generation this, right? And zero trust. Yep. Um, and for the part of the vendor side of the house, vendors do a really good job if they're paying attention, playing up those marketing terms to do that and present it that way because that's expectations. But in reality, you know, you're right. It's not microwave popcorn. You don't just throw it in there, hit start and walk away for five minutes. There's a lot of things to consider. And so my question back to you on that, you mentioned in a roundabout way, kind of cost benefit analysis, right? From your perspective today, thinking about the market and where it's going with zero trust or just security in general, do you see a potential for a subcategory in this market to be that consultant who comes in and says, here's your current stack, here's what zero trust would mean in your stack, and here's the cost differential and the ROI potential, vice versa. And yes, you should move. No, you shouldn't move that thought. I don't think that is there today. I think that it's something that is on the horizon. Companies are still, quite frankly, struggling with cloud adoption. I mean, I say that with a, a bit of grimace. There's, there's many factors why. Just the shortage of cyber talent, the pace that it needs to, the pace that it takes to complete, the planning. Let me re, let me reset that. 
companies are struggling with securing the cloud today, not being successful in the cloud. Um, they understand that they have assets and data. When breach or compromise occurs, they're still lost in the cloud minutiae. Companies are very effective at using the cloud. The trust model, the shared security model, people have forgotten about that. They, there is still a large percentage of the world that feels, once I put it in Amazon, once I put it in Azure, all is, they, we've forgotten the shared responsibility. So it is on the horizon because of the way that the workforce is evolving. Regardless of your craft, people aren't going back to the office. Digitization is happening. I mean, IoT has been here forever. I mean, go to Showdown and just see just what the world looks like. We have more data being transferred from non-carbon-based things than we ever have in the past. Um, our complexity of access, data, and loss is, has tremendously changed from a year ago. And companies are now stabilizing. We're all in this, in this decision tree now. What should my perimeter architecture look like? I have people that are coming back and I have people saying never coming back. So this building this hybrid, this is a long answer to your question. It's on the horizon. We're still struggling with IAM. Like that first part of zero trust is identity access. Pick a company, run Ping Castle against Active Directory. <laughs> That small foundation, I mean, Active Directory is not IAM. I mean, it's if you're going to start in zero trust and that's all you have, it's a great starting point. And I urge you to make sure that it's tight. When I mean tight, I mean, it's resilient to attack. Are you willing to put your Active Directory structure on the other side of your current castle and moat model? If you are, you're ready for zero trust. If you're not, you're, you're still in the planning stage or you should migrate to some other identity provider, you know, commercial IAM. So there, there is space for that, Neil. The cost benefit analysis is still in the eyes of the people that hold the budget, your cyber leaders and podcasts like this that educate on zero trust that are beyond a Google search. And I mean, everyone goes to talk some, our industry is well educated, but we're under pressure to make decisions that enable the business and drive the next innovation the next revenue target, all while we're protecting, responding, gathering intelligence, analyzing data, and helping each other, caring for our people, you know, retaining the people that we have. So there's not a ton of time afforded to a cyber leader to make great decisions on a large architecture. And there's now pressure in certain industries to adopt zero trust. NIST has a, a was SP 800 something two, 270 or something like that. NIST released guidance, the OMB released guidance that everyone needs to work towards a zero trust. NSA has their own documentation. And it's easy when you're in the commercial side and say that stuff doesn't, it doesn't apply to me. It does it, indirectly, um, you know, as a supply chain evolves and the government agencies successfully adopt this, it's, you know, it starts to work its way. If you can, if you think about the government as the center of, you know, cyber explosions, you know, it does build. So zero trust is on the horizon, whether we enjoy it or not. I, Dom, I think that you literally just stole the words out of my mouth. In the cyber industry, well, in most tech industry as a whole, here in the U.S. in particular and overseas to some limited extent as well, our, our give our government props on one thing. Think from that security implementation perspective, they're always you know, four or five, six years ahead, depending on the tech, 
but they're always in, which has been really kind of neat to see cybersecurity just in general, monitoring threat actors and fingerprinting threat actors instead of just blocking an IP address and calling it a day, things like that. The government's always been steps in front of that idea. And I think you make a good point that if the government's taking the time to prioritize, adopt, and stipulate what this means to them, chances are adoption rates out here on this side of the fence are going to start happening in the next couple of years as well, or at least be more of a requirement from a conceptual perspective of what that means. So we look at threat intel, you know, five, six years ago, threat intel was really just getting adopted concertedly on this side of the fence, right? Yeah. But now if you're on a, if you've got a SOC with four people and that, or even if you're just an MSSP, there's somebody in there who thinks they do threat intel, whether they do or don't, that's a different debate but they're tying threat intelligence, <laughs> something or another, right? Or an Intel yeah. analyst, blah, blah, blah. So that's awesome. I think that's a great point to see, to highlight, you know, governments codified it. They've actually built it in some instantiations. We had a guest on prior to this who helped with, with a federal deployment of this. And, and so, yeah, it's there. It's not going away. The idea's there to stay. And now it's time for us on the private side of the house to realize what that can or can't do for us on some. Yeah. And the luxury of being in non-dib space is it can be at your own pace. And the downside to that is you're at your own risk. It's true. Um, yeah, which brings another talking point, the risk portion of it. As we're adopting zero trust and we're, it's again, it's not microwave popcorn. It just doesn't happen. We're going to be in some migration because it's a journey over time. Um, I have yet, and if Neil Elliott, if you've spoken to someone, please enlighten me. I have not spoken to a pen tester or a red teamer that has evaluated a zero trust architecture. And that was their point of compromise, or that was their exploitation or the proof of concept because there's still easier targets to, to there's lower hanging fruit. I've seen very well implemented zero trust that still have an on-prem legacy that the pen test was the target of. I've seen large mergers acquisitions that do pen testing at a, you know, every 45 day interval from major pen testing firms where the zero trust architecture is not even a target of evaluation. It's forgotten about. One of the things that I'm dying to know is do we have pen testers that with, that have zero trust craft? Yeah. Um, for our part, we haven't found someone yet, but now it's kind of my mission personally to see who I can find. But I mean, I think that's also a fun highlight too. We look at like any war, you know, you bring a pencil, someone brings a big stick. You bring a big stick, someone brings a knife, right? Everything is just layers and layers until mm -hmm. ultimately we either all destroy ourselves or we get to a layer where it's just so overly complicated that everybody just gives up. That won't actually obviously happen. But long and short, you know, what was it? Everybody as we're moving to the cloud and we saw this uptick in ransomware, even before ransomware back in, what was it? 20, 2012 ish was the day of the exploit kits like Angler and those, right? That was their heyday. Right. That I think set the community off on the whole MFA or at least, you know, two FA mentality, at least a little bit. So all of a sudden all these websites started offering up MFA and two FA type components, some kind of TOTP compliancy and then duo security and Okta just skyrocketed. But we got there to that layer and then the next thing came up and oh now we can kind of defeat in certain circumstances certain types of totp but not consistently but people still don't focus on it because it's an echelon above where they really have to go 
And I think from an adoption and hierarchical steps up, the mentality of zero trust is that layer that's been missing behind where we started with MFA and trying to remove that singular point of contact from security protocols and procedures and do, you mentioned, make it so complicated right now where when the bad guys do try to get in, they're having to look for that legacy stuff at the moment because the tradecraft isn't there yet, hopefully. And then that's where you get to find your missing links and, you know, move things into that next layer. But zero trust mm -hmm. will get exploited in some way or another, I'm sure. The concept will be there and somebody will find a way in and then we'll come up with something new. But for the time being, you're right. There's zero trust and then there's all the other stuff we haven't fixed yet, even when we've adopted and people get to focus on this for the moment. So I take a little bit of common in what you're saying. Because as you described how that stack has evolved, it's all about access. I mean, you can rewind the tape and say, pick a breach. I know there's RCE. I know there's zero day. And you and I know the frequency and when they're used. It's low. I'm not going to give my best when I don't have to. Adversaries are people just like we are. If they, there's a rod of least resistance, that's what they're going to do. But it's all about access. And zero trust does evaluate access along the way and the things you were mentioning and one of the things that i do enjoy about zero the zero trust model is context around access the time the location the frequency and as your model matures you can start to use other context frequency um, flow size the potential is not endless because it's it is compute power and it is complexity we don't want to bump up against that complexity jagged edge where we you know defeat ourselves in it the thing that is kind of overlooked in the zero trust is all the context that you can put all the method all the protection and sometime forensic just the whole protection and the defense continuum. That's zero trust really addresses access. So a few moments back, thinking about this from the access control perspectives, which once again, it is what it is. You talked about the world IoT or embedded systems in general, whether that's a SCADA or PLC or some other kind of logic or control systems, but OT side of the house versus the IT side of the house in a roundabout mm -hmm. way. and. For me, when I think about this, securing the human aspect is always going to be difficult no matter what you do, right? I think especially like you keep coming back to the remote world, you know, you can do everything you want to do to my work laptop, but the moment I pick up my personal laptop to do what I should be doing on my work laptop, completely done, right? You don't know what's on that laptop or the other part of the network. But what you can do is look at all your other embedded systems, all your IoT type stuff, and I think for me, having worked on the OT side before, I, I find that as potentially the low hanging fruit of zero trust implementation. You mentioned, does it make sense to do it because of the scale or should we keep it within those echelons that we've already built from data diodes and all the other fun stuff that we're already doing? And I think once that cost benefit analysis plays out, a lot of the OT networks will be, I hope, ground zero for like full zero trust evaluation. There's a very nice dovetail with them because you can consider them untrusted already. And it's kind of been the model unknown to us. We just didn't, when these first came on the scene, you probably much like me, someone came to me and said, we have all this OT equipment. I have a digital direct digital manufacturing monster device that has, you know, seven network connections 
what do I do with it? So we kind of said, they're just untrusted. You know, in the ACL role-based access, we just kind of quarantined them off and said, you're untrusted. And then they needed to connect to everything else. So there's a super foundation for that OT network to build the workflows and understand the data flow because they'll have a harmony. You're an intelligence guy. You know what harmony looks like. You know what expected. You know what anomalous is. And you see aberrant. When you see aberrant, it's outside of your trust. So it, there, there is a nice dovetail starting point because there's not necessarily humans involved. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 With that thought flow in mind, two things, passwordless security as part of this construct, and then I'm going to come back to that. And then, uh, well, no, let's go ahead and start. I literally just forgot where I was going to go with the second one because I got so <laughs> hyper-focused on passwordless security because it's one of those weird ones for me. And you mentioned, you know, the fingerprinting construct, which is basically what that passwordless security ultimately is. It's taking the fingerprint of who's behind a keyboard or a device and then being able to say, this is the persistent fingerprint when it doesn't meet these parameters, right? Then flag something. So do you think just that that basic concept is important, or at least the technology mentality behind it to do that algorithmic fingerprinting, even if you're still using an actual password, but the concept sure. of that heuristic approach, how much do you think that needs to happen to be able to really have the right security protocols in play for when something does go sideways or at least to monitor in case something goes sideways. I think it has a place in environments that require that type of authentication. The entire world's not ready for that. Just the people, the maintenance of that and the convenience of it are tremendous. Is that met for every small business? Is it met for every enterprise? It is a great cyber utopia. It really is because it has predictability, it has resiliency, and there is some fault tolerance built into it. Adoption is what I struggle with, practical adoption. So I think it is a advanced stage of zero trust models. I think that if that is your first bite of the pie on identification, I, you know, authorization, identification, you'll spend a lot of time where you could have traveled many more miles with multi-factor of some aspect that has some geofencing behind it, some other context. Yeah. I'm a major fan of passwordless authentication because of those three things, but I do understand its place. Um, my travel agent who books my travel, which is intelligence information, part of my supply chain, I don't expect her to have passwordless authentication. And I, I mentioned that because Zero Trust has to consider our supply chain. And if your supply chain isn't using identification as at least as strong as what you are, so if you're setting your bar at passwordless authentication, you're raising the bar, you're raising the tide of your entire trust architecture, your zero trust architecture. But again, because it's zero trust, we can constantly evaluate and put more context behind it. As much as I enjoy it, I turn the squelch back to at least 2FA, MFA. So... I'll no, jump in good. a little bit on that one, only because I literally yeah. was in the ZTNA space with doing all the competitive intelligence on companies that can yield that kind of output. And that's definitely still future stakes. I don't know how much I can say without getting in trouble, but device context is definitely a huge ask for organizations because if they can do it through automated intelligence where they can do that fingerprinting, Basically knowing what device you're on, where you're at, who you are, should this person be accessing various different elements. There are very few pieces of technology that allow people to access certain things today 
that even breaches that level of context. I know that a lot of organizations are trying to, but on the technology side, it's still a little bit ways out. Yeah, boy, I'd love to say to you, well, there is MTLS, the mutual TLS, that where there's a client mm -hmm. that authenticates to something. That's hard. I mean, PKI is, PKI is not an easy pill to swallow. And, you know, implementing certificates on devices that don't have people, I can't agree with you more. It's a challenge. Yeah, I remember the glory days of my CACs and running around CACs trying to make sure Yeah, oh my gosh. That may or may not also be one of the reasons why I decided to not be in the government space anymore. <laughs> Every two days, hey, you got a new you got a new PKI, you got to go to the help desk and show them your ID and all your birth records and your shots and everything else. And by the way, we're going to make up some pin for you, but you got to remember it to get back because we can't write it down. So then when you walk two miles back to your desk and you forget the pin, then you get it locked out. Yeah, it's a wonderful world. Uh, Right. And again, that's the beginning, early in-person days of zero trust. They wouldn't yeah. trust you until they verified your identity and you had to provide other context and they did it often. Yes. Yeah. And so wrapping that back around context is zero trust has been around conceptually for a while. We just haven't provided nomenclature to it, I think. And I think that's the fun part about this discussion is I'm hoping personally, I'm hoping people realize that the things that you need to do to reach this concept, once again, are not things that require heavy purchases necessarily. And it's also technically not really anything overtly new from a technology stack. It's just how you apply the things that have already been made available and then maybe go out and buy one or two nifty little bells and whistles to help roll it all together. And I think, especially from our conversation, I feel like you kind of agree with that mentality, at least a little bit from where it should start and finish. Certainly. And I think when you're looking at zero trust, having some craft in multi in micro segmentation, software defined networks, really understanding what strong identification and authorization is are keys to success. So considering where you're at right now, I was just curious if you have any insight into seeing if there are an increase in requests for people with background in zero trust explicitly or if basically where we were chatting earlier, where remote elements, remote teams supporting those use cases, which roll up into zero trust and concept, obviously that's on the table, but are you seeing any increase in, in an explicit request for people with any kind of zero trust background framework concept? Yeah. Mainly in IAM, still in that foundational stage. IAM and cloud security engineers that are software-defined network wizards so the in the iam space and cloud security engineers are really the, on the cusp of it zta and just zt are just starting to appear in people's career lineage i wouldn't put zta on you know my career profile yet um because it's still it's conceptual i'd be willing to speak to it i would be more prone to do software defined networks and micro segmentation from you know an overall standpoint. So IAM and cloud security engineers are driving. The asterisk is DevSecOps is a whole nother zero trust discussion, just data containers. And that world is in some ways ahead, in some ways chasing it. So I just have one final question from a getting started perspective, and you touched once again on this early on as well. If you had a resource or a concept or just like a 30 second thing for them to go look up just to get their fingers wrapped around where they should start where would you point people to dictionary google type things or actual resources that you're aware of 
what should they Google? Whatever it may be. What would you be I, your 101? Well, you're putting me on the spot. It, I think it's zerotrust.gov is the repo that lists the OMB, the NSA docs, and the NIST standard. That, the, Although they're heavy, the NIST defines it very well. There's seven bullet points that say this is what zero trust is. And if you have two things that look at the NIST definition and look at the OMB maturity model, because it says there's a you know, preparatory phase, baseline, a midline, and an advanced. So baseline, intermediate, and advanced. And they list some bullets on whether you're ready for that stage or not. Those are two resources that really are either technology product agnostic that are at the model level. That works. I appreciate it. Yeah. I'm asking more so I know where to go look is really what this question's for. But <laughs> <laughs> That's where I put people. It's been great, guys. I wish I had a little more time. Thank you so much, Dom, for joining us today. And I think before we wrap up, there's two things that we want to highlight. So if there are any pen testers that are out there that have tried to break into zero trust driven organizations, definitely reach out to Neil and myself. We would love to chat with you. I think that would be a great follow up for this. But why don't we just do a quick little chat about exactly what you do today, maybe point people towards the resources that you're providing. Yeah, I think visiting cybersn.com and creating a profile and joining our network will help you connect with other like cyber professionals. We're all about the community. So cybersn.com and just build a profile. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. Thanks, we really guys. appreciate you yeah, joining. My CEO will be so happy. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Dom. Man. I appreciate it. Thanks for the good conversation. Thank you for joining AZT, an independent series. Your hosts have been Elliot Volkman and Neil Dennis. To learn more about Zero Trust, go to adoptingzerotrust.com, subscribe to our newsletter or join our Slack community. Viewpoints expressed during the show do not reflect the brands, employers or companies of our hosts, guests or potential sponsors.